Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, where we discuss wine, beer, and spirits. I am your trepidatious co-host, Michael, an enthusiast of all things craft. And with me is Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 Certified in Wine, and I'm an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And uh, we changed the intro again, I guess. Yes, I did. <laughs> Very impressive. Okay, um, <laughs> fair, fair, fair enough. Yeah, I, I did used to work on a vineyard, um, and I was a wine sales associate for a little bit as well, but we are... Not going to go into that. Um, <laughs> those are dark times. Those are dark times. Well, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't too bad on the vineyard, except for the fact that I got sick while I was there. Oh, I'm, I was talking about the sales times. Uh, yeah, no, that one that one was a dark time. It was very educational, um, but at the same time, you know, whatever. Anywho, thank you guys so much for joining us. Last time we discussed the delicious wines of Chile, located yes. on the southwestern border of South America. For our listeners over the pond, I should mention that when we in the U.S., uh, that we distinguish between North and South America at the Panama Canal. Uh, and in case today, you haven't taken a basic geography course. No, no. A lot of people in uh, like Europe, like when we say South America, they're like, what do you mean? Oh, and, and you guys are going to make fun of us for not knowing where Belgium is in relation mm. to the UK. Yeah, no, 100%. And no, I don't know where Belgium is in relation to the UK, <laughs> but you know what? We're just not going to talk about we're, we're, that. You know what? We we just outed ourselves. So you're embarrassed. We're embarrassed. We're all here to learn. We're, we're, and speaking of being embarrassed, we're, we're a little embarrassed because we haven't yes. been able to record in a while. Um, we do apologize for that. Life happens sometimes, yeah. and uh, Michael and I's lives have been a little hectic recently, so we just have not had the time to get together to record. But we are hopefully back on track and also upping our social media presence. So if you want to follow us at Laidback Lush on uh, Instagram and Twitter, we are getting more active, as we have been saying we're going to do for a year now. Um, but we're actually doing it this time. So yeah. yeah, we're putting in the work, putting in the hours. Yeah. So please do follow us on those platforms. And that's the easiest way to reach out to us if you have questions mm -hmm. or comments or suggestions, even. suggestions, concerns, you know, patron, constructive criticism, yeah. hate mail, hate mail, <laughs> trolling, hot takes, Rick rolls, uh, you know, spam. Mm -hmm. lots of spam oh yeah those uh those like chain emails from 2010 where you know the haunted girl is going to get you if you don't send this to 10 people send us lots of those yeah those in particular not the ones that's like if you retweet this then you're going to have something good in your life only curses oh, only only curses. curses so today we will be traveling across the andes mountains to the lovely country of argentina Known for its sprawling grasslands, the Iguazu Falls, which I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Please help me at Laidback Lush. In the Northeast, a lovely musical starring Madonna and, of course, its wine. Uh, many of you, if you are wine drinkers, which, you know, listening to this podcast, I can only assume. A safe assumption. I it's think. a safe assumption. I mean, a lot of people just listen to podcasts, not because they're like involved in a thing, but because like they just enjoy the, the podcast. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I love it. But uh, many of you have already tried their Malbec, which is always a fantastic value. We'll be discussing this as well as their history and their climate today. And we're going to go into a little bit about their regions and kind of this, the different things that affect it, what you can expect to be coming out of those regions, as well as the, uh, the terroir of those regions. Mm -hmm. All righty. So let's get right on into it. As far as their history is concerned... We do have the first vineyard being established by Juan Cidron, and he used cuttings that came from the Central Valley in Chile. This was done in 1556. Now, what do we know about the vines that he was bringing over? 
So we think that this was probably uh, the ancestor or a uh, further back uh, iteration of the grape Pice. If you're listened to our Chile episode, you will know what that grape is. If you haven't, go ahead and give it a listen if you want to find out. This grape became known in Argentina, though, as Criolla Chica over time. Uh, and this grape actually sustained much of Argentina's wine production for several hundred years after it was brought over. Argentina was not always known for Malbec. Fun fact, when it first started, it was this Criolla Chica grape that is also Pais, is also the Mission grape as well, if I'm remembering my lineages correctly. Okay, so. We had that. Did we have any other people that were trying to get wine production going in the country at that time? Yeah. So in 1557, we had vine cuttings that were brought to Santiago del Estero by the Jesuits, who established our first commercial vineyard at the time, actually. If you listen to our History of Wine series, the Jesuits were pretty instrumental in a lot of the missionary work that went on in South America and in the southeastern or southwestern, excuse me, United States as well, um, before they were banned by the Catholic Church for being too woke, I guess. Um, <laughs> you got to love a good religious uh, disagreement that turns into massive economic trouble for everybody. Yeah. Um, but they were pretty instrumental in helping build more of a commercial industry here in Argentina. And then we also moving forward to the late 16th century. Yeah, cuz I mean, they were having to face a lot of different issues while oh, they yeah. were while they were doing things there and mm -hmm. I'm sure that there were only a couple of places that were good for growing in the first place, especially yeah. considering how dry Argentina is. Oh yeah, so Argentina is primarily a desert if you were not aware. So Again, in our late 16th century, we did have a system of canals that were built primarily by the Spaniards, although from some of my research, actually some of the indigenous tribes that were here did have canals for irrigation that were set up as well. And the Spaniards actually considered them to be like enlightened natives, I guess, because <laughs> uh, the Spaniards also utilized pretty heavy irrigation in Spain itself, because Spain is also a very dry climate, if you're not aware. So... This uh, system of canals helped with wine production because it brought irrigation to the country. And that is going to be bringing primarily snowmelt down from the Andes as the source of water for these canals. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the natives of the area because out of all of the countries in South America, Argentina has the lowest population of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I believe that happened because of an influx of immigrants. It was just the fact that because they were working so closely and we didn't have modern health care at all, they were just dying because of being exposed to things from, from over the pond. Mm -hmm. uh, so like a lot of people, they are from primarily Spain and Germany as far as their ancestry is concerned. Yeah. What's really interesting, though, is that the second boon of immigrants to Argentina was during the phylloxera epidemic. Argentina, its climate allows for a lot of things that affect other climates to not be as effective in this climate, which is mostly due to how dry it is. Mm -hmm. uh, again, we mentioned the fact that it, you know, it's it's mostly a desert. Well, they don't have to do a lot of spraying there. Mm -hmm. There are tons and tons of natural wines that are coming out of there and even though they weren't necessarily researching how to make things natural wine at the time, the fact is, is that Phylloxera wasn't able to gain a footing 
strong enough in order to kill off the vines themselves. Yeah. So this is this is huge because of what it allowed them to do as far as advancing in other ways. Mm-hmm. So as you said, Phylloxera wasn't really able to grab a total foothold. There is technically Phylloxera in Argentina, but there are a couple of variants, well, not variants, I guess, a uh, species of Phylloxera or subspecies. And the Phylloxera that was able to make it to Argentina is very weak and it can't survive in the soils for very long. And it's too weak to even really pose a threat to the vines that are there if it does make it to a vine. Also, sandy soils in general are very inhospitable to Phylloxera, all kinds of Phylloxera. So, again, being a desert, not very hospitable for Phylloxera. And that's part of why immigrants stuck around during the, you know, kind of mass exodus from particularly Italy and France and Spain at the time, because they were dealing with all their vineyards being decimated out there. But here, they didn't really have that problem. That's so fantastic. Um, It's really unfortunate how much of an impact that phylloxera was able to have so quickly. We're going to be actually discussing phylloxera in more depth in our next episode, though, if you guys would like to stay tuned for that or two or three depending on how extensive my notes get <laughs> yeah no it, yeah phylloxera is kind of a big deal it affected everybody so it's going to be kind of like a little journey across the world yeah okay so we have this group of grapes being introduced into the vineyard setting within argentina we have this climate kind of being a, a buffer against a lot of hardships that the native population was going to have to face for those vines What did we actually see as a result of that coming out of the 19th century? Now that we have all of these new winemakers coming in, a lot of them are highly educated on wine because they were coming out of vineyards that, you know, were just simply decimated by phylloxera. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they were able to come in with their wine knowledge. How did that actually impact wine production and its reception in Argentina? So... It wasn't until actually the very late 20th century that we saw wines really begin to be exported. What ended up happening in the 19th century is a lot of these winemakers were making wines, again, a a lot of them from Criolla Chica, but of course they also were bringing over some of their own vines as well, right? Um, But most of it was for production within Argentina. They did not really have an export market. Mendoza and Salta were some of the kind of progenitors of the wine regions in Argentina because they are close to the Andes, so that's where the water source is. And before modern industrialization happened, it was very hard to get your wines out until the 20th century when particularly trains that were able to then get wine from Mendoza out to Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina, if you are not aware, for both, you know, trade within the country and then export trade as well. However, things were not quite as um, even keeled as I'm sure a lot of Argentinian winemakers would have liked them to be during the 20th century. As I'm sure you are probably aware, if you are aware of South American history, the 20th century was a very difficult time economically for Argentina. They had their economy collapse and uh, there was just a lot of really horrible things that happened to the country during the 20th century. And 
towards the end of the 20th century when the country was kind of trying to get itself out of this economic hardship, they started to look at focusing on their export markets instead of focusing on providing just uh, local wine. Because there's a lot more money to be made in selling premium wines on the export market than there is selling, you know, Mm. cheap table wines to your local community, which nothing wrong with that. You know, uh, Italy and places like that still have a lot of local production. I'm sure Argentina does as well. But now they focus a lot more on their exports. And that is kind of the outcome of all of that, again, economic trouble from the 20th century. Mm. That's interesting. So we have them starting to compete on a more international level now. A lot of what happens when you have uh, international export is that people start having to take a closer look at what makes their region as unique as it is. A unique expression of each country and the regions within that country and then the uh, the smaller kind of terroirs that are available in those regions is one of the biggest preoccupations of wine. So let's get into some of the climate that is being expressed inside of Argentina. Let's. So as I said, Argentina overall is a desert in its climate. It is going to be hot and semi-arid specifically. Mm. So it gets it gets really hot. It's like uh, yeah. I think it, at its hottest in the growing season, it can get up to like 90 degrees. And this is, again, like dry heat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at night, it still is staying around like 50 to 60 degrees mm-hmm. in most places. Of course, you have some some areas that are going to be a little bit colder just simply because of well, actually, how far south they are. Yeah. Um, remember, when you get down to uh, past the equator, it's getting colder the further south you get mm-hmm. um, as you approach Antarctica. Correct. So it's worth pointing out as we get into all of this that most of these regions, except for kind of the Patagonia region, that does tend to kind of spread more eastward. But in general, most of the concentration of vineyards are going to be in the western part of the country mm-hmm. along the Andes Mountains. Because yeah. again, well, let's get into that actually. So yeah. the Andes act as a rain shadow. So that's very good, as you mentioned, for natural winemaking, organic winemaking, sustainable winemaking in general. Irrigation obviously is needed because this is a desert. Yeah, uh, I think it's mostly drip irrigation that they're using in the area. Um, It's it's becoming much more drip irrigation. Chile had a little bit more of a head start economically mm-hmm. to convert than Argentina did. So they were willing to rebel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, we still actually do see flood irrigation used pretty commonly. And oh, really? Yeah. And so flood irrigation, uh, if you don't know, is where they literally just flood a vineyard or they might even um, they might not fully flood it, but they'll dig trenches in between the vines and just flood the vineyard with water and that in theory lasts through the whole growing season it's not the best method particularly for quality and that is again part of why we're seeing such a big shift towards drip irrigation as well as just being much more efficient for the vines especially when you're in an area that is so dry and arid there's just so much that just takes off into the air Mm -hmm. and you really don't want that either for the vines themselves or for the simple waste of it yeah now there is one caveat to the low rainfall aspect of argentinian wine and that is that as with chile there are el nino years which are again years that are very heavy in rain Mm -hmm. 
Is that still the uh, the terminology that's used in Argentina as well? I believe so. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. So uh, we also have some advantages from just planting in the mountains at altitude in general. So Argentina overall would be too hot in most places to grow grapes at all, even with going farther south. And part of the way to get away from that is planting at altitude. And so obviously the Andes are very tall mountains. And so that is possible here. Oh, that's fantastic. Because um, when you're doing that, so like you guys may or may not know, but wine grapes can actually have their skins burned mm -hmm. in much the same way that a, a person can have their skins burned. Yeah. So with the Andes mountains, they are positioned on that western edge of a lot of these vineyards. Think about the earth rotating in that direction so that you have that sunlight coming over from east to west. That means that a lot of the sunlight that's going to be getting to these vines is going to be in the early morning and in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. But then right as you're getting to the hottest part of the day, you see that there's this little tip and the Andes Mountains are starting to give more and more cover the higher up a vineyard is. So as soon as it goes over the side of the Andes Mountains, that's allowing for those skins to not be faced with as intense a solar radiation during the latter part of the afternoon. Yeah. And as well, we also have, which that actually kind of ties directly into the high diurnal ranges that you have in, well, kind of also from the fact that it's a desert and deserts tend to have a fairly high diurnal range. Yeah. Um, but then you plant at altitude even more so. So if you don't remember, if you haven't listened to our podcast before we've talked about it, Diurnal range just means the difference between your average day temperatures and your average night temperatures. And the higher that range is, the better for grapes is because it slows down ripening and allows for ripening to fully happen without the fruit becoming too jammy or overripe by the time harvest comes around. The largest one that I found was 15 degrees Celsius, or if you can't make that conversion in your head, uh, that's 59 degrees Fahrenheit. So between the daytime and the nighttime, that is huge and yeah. that does a lot of amazing things for vines uh for wine grapes themselves mm -hmm. so we also have the fact that planting at altitude is a heat mitigation factor and i think everybody knows that the higher you go up in a mountain the cooler it gets in general also to help with the heat uh, there was a pergola trained system for the vines that was called paral locally if you don't know what pergola training is, it's basically uh, you kind of have some kind of structure that allows the grapes to grow on the ceiling of the structure. You can kind of walk underneath it and the fruit hangs down. The reason this is used in particularly very hot areas is it allows a lot of free air to blow around the grapes. It's also used in areas that tend to be very wet because it can help keep the grapes dry as well with that air circulation. This is actually still used a lot for Tarantes in Argentina. Not really used for many other grapes anymore. Most of them are now going to be using some very low training and vertical shoot positioning. If you've seen a picture of a vineyard, it was probably vertical shoot positioning where it has the wires that go across and the vines are trained to follow the wires. So now that is going to be primarily what you see for most other grapes in Argentina. So they're able to mitigate with that, but there are some other pretty hazardous things that are going on because we've been discussing a lot, you know, it's very hot, but we have the Andes Mountains, which, you know, that's allowing us to have that, you know, great sun exposure 
Uh, we don't have to deal with phylloxera all too much. We also have soils uh, that are mostly sandy, loam, mm-hmm. uh, lots of mineral deposits. A lot of them are actually fairly poor quality, which is good yeah, for, uh, for grapes. Yeah. For grapes. Because it it restricts their access to uh, nutrients, and so they have to dig deeper, they have to get stronger, and they end up being able to support lower yields of higher quality grapes. But we also have a couple of factors being caused by the Andes Mountains that are not great for vineyards, and that's going to be what are called hailstorms. I cannot overstate how remarkably damaging these are. Because when we're talking about hail, especially if you're from, like us, here in Virginia, an area where hail, it, it's like considered awful if it gets to the size of a marble. Mm-hmm. It does not get to the size of a marble. It gets to the size of a softball. Yeah, These are massive. At terminal velocity, you are looking at a, uh, a ball of ice the size of a softball going 100 miles per hour shredding vineyards Mm -hmm. these i mean that's that's the that would be like if you got a team of baseball players who are all the star pitchers on their team and you just had them tossing as many baseballs into your vineyard as possible as quickly and as powerfully as they could yeah and it doesn't happen everywhere it will happen sporadically and this it's it's massive this causes 15 percent decrease in the amount of yield that is actually usable Mm-hmm. So and it'll happen just at these different places. So you can literally have a vineyard here that gets destroyed in the next door. They're fine. Or you can have uh, a person whose holdings just were unluckily hit in a bunch of different areas. And so there are a lot of different things that they have to do in order to mitigate this. And instead of like Burgundy, Burgundy will th- throw up, you know, uh, silver iodide into rockets. They choose violence. If you have Rothschild money then yeah why wouldn't you shoot the sky yeah. it's like it's an act of god well sorry god not anymore <laughs> not anymore i have rockets what they will do though is a lot of people will uh, diversify their holdings from where they're sourcing their grapes just to make sure that they have enough like spread out places to source their stuff from so that they're not being like destroyed by it or if they have the time and the money they will go ahead and put up nets And these nets will typically be able to help, at the very least, with these very large hailstones. Yeah, Yeah. I just when I when I learned that that one really shocked me. I would love to visit Argentina and to go to an Argentinian vineyard, but that frankly scares me. Yeah, and you're right about the cost of the netting. Netting is very expensive for Argentina, so it's actually cheaper for some people to just have that diversified vineyard holding as their yeah. insurance i guess and just accept the fact that you you might lose a little here and there yeah is it more or less expensive than rockets though i have to know <laughs> probably a little bit less pro- i pro- would assume a little bit um <laughs> it's literally a sword and shield argument yeah well and also you know france's uh their primary export market is actually aerospace technology so they already kind of have a leg up on argentina yeah. there but anyway, so there's That's also um, one more thing on the climate, and that'll be the last thing before we move on to grapes, is winds, very high and hot winds from the Andes Mountains, when snow happens on top and it creates a compression of the air and all that, can be very damaging to vineyards as well. So oh, wow. winds, high winds can be a problem here on I, top of all that. 
So uh, moving on to our grapes, uh, yeah. fun fact, Argentina is the fifth largest producer of wines in the entire world. So for our white grapes, we have Torontes, as I mentioned earlier. This came from, we think, uh, Muscat of Alexandria and Criolla Chica having a, a, a baby, if you will. If you are familiar with Muscat of Alexandria, it is aromatic. It's very fruity, and that comes through in Torantes. So this is going to be an aromatic grape, meaning it has a very highly pronounced nose, typically very floral and fruity as well. For me personally, it reminds me of Viognier a lot. Not quite Riesling. Riesling is a little bit more citrus fruity. This is typically more of your richer fruits here for Torontes. Wonderful grape, kind of the signature grape outside of just Malbec, uh, particularly for the white grapes of uh, Argentina. This is going to be the one that people really focus on. What's the uh, acid content like in it? From what I remember, it's decently acidic. It's not quite as high as Riesling, but it is a little bit more than Gavuch Demeanor, if I remember correctly. So it's not as um, viscous as Gavuch Demeanor tends to be. But it is pretty refreshing in that mm-hmm. in that way. So you- oh, yeah, it's a wonderful summer wine in particular. Mm, so would you say that this would go well with like seafood? Is it acidic to that, to that degree? Mm, I would not say that. And I would also say I'm not sure the flavor profile would really lend itself well unless the seafood were maybe kind of a Southeast Asian Thai food more mm, kind mm. of style of seafood. Um, actually, I think it would go pretty well with Korean food as well. Mm. And, you know, obviously your your chicken dishes, like kind of more heartier lighter meats and seafoods i so, would say is what it would stand up to a little bit better so it's a bit on the on the stronger side it can stand yeah. up to yeah we're still looking at you know like lighter meats we're not looking at red meat but mm-hmm. it can still stand up to to a lot of those i would love to have this with some sort of like chicken soup of some sort i think that mm-hmm. would be yeah. lovely okay so moving on what other whites do we have we have chardonnay as well Chardonnay from Argentina overall is going to be ripe and fruity in style. They aren't really known for like premium Chardonnays, so maybe not like quite as much oaking and malactic and all that fun stuff that more, you know, prestigious Chardonnay regions will do, but it is still a very well-known grape here. We also have Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, and uh, I believe that people in within Argentina, at least in the videos I watch, pronounce it Semillon. It seems Semillon. That, yeah, it seems that the double L's in Argentina seem to make a, a J sound. I'm not, uh, you know, a native speaker by any means, so I could definitely be wrong there. But, uh, you know, Criolla Chica is spelled C-R-I-O-L-L-A, and it still has that J sound. So I don't know if that's kind of a quirk of Argentinian dialect or not. So we do have Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon here. I couldn't really find anything that distinguishes these grapes from grapes found elsewhere, so I would assume that they're probably going to be similar to maybe not as high quality as Chile's Sauvignon Blanc, but probably approximate in style. I mean, yeah, that was from most of my reading, because I haven't had that many Argentinian Sauvignon Blancs myself, but they do have some. I don't think I've had any now that I think about it. Yeah, they do have some, though, that at least by reputation are said to be very high quality. Especially when you're getting more towards those colder areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Patagonia is going to be where you really want to look for Sauvignon Blanc in the country. But we're not just growing whites here. In fact, we know that they are also known very primarily for their reds. Correct. So obviously Malbec, Argentinian Malbec, it's it's the grape of Argentina, right? 
This was brought over by the French in the 60s, fun fact, so it actually has a very recent history comparatively to the rest of the wine industry. You're going to find a lot of your black fruits. You're going to find a pretty pronounced peppery edge to it, very inky colors, and it's going to be pretty tannic. Maybe not quite as high as Cabernet Sauvignon, but still, it, it's it's a tannic wine. It, I yeah. would definitely call it a tannic wine. And I would I would say that a lot of those tannins are going to be like leathery in the way that they come across. Mm-hmm. They're just they're kind of a rounder, smoother type of tannin, especially if it's a good quality yeah. Malbec. It's funny, I've had my best Malbec experiences and my worst Malbec experiences, <laughs> both from Argentina. Well, I mean, the market, let's admit it, it's flooded. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. It is probably their biggest money grape. But you can get obviously, a high quality Malbec oh, for yeah. 15 bucks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but even with all that being said, there's going to be really good Malbec and there's going to be very not so good we have a very not so good malbec and it's come back as a ghost almost every single time that we talk about a wine experience that we didn't enjoy oh yeah 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 we're not going to describe it again just know it was awful listen to our episodes about gas station wines if you want a full breakdown of that monstrosity but anyway back to the good stuff which by the way we were literally comparing this wine which we bought at a store in its Argentina, Mendoza, Argentina, actually, Correct, yeah. in that section, we were comparing that to uh, Cupa de Vino, mm-hmm. and it was pretty, it's it kind of similar to quality. In fact, I almost I, enjoyed the Cupa de Vino better. I was about to say, the Merlot at least didn't taste like almost pure, um, what is it, super purple, that yeah. that additive that gets added into like literally every red wine, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, we're not going to go into that because that would make us sad. We're going Actually, to... we should do an episode on some of those additives. I think that would be a, a good idea. Oh, yeah. No, particularly absolutely. super purple. I think a lot of people don't know how widespread that additive is and why. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, uh, so we have Malbec. Amazing, amazing yeah. wine. And this really is for you darker wine drinkers. Like mm-hmm. this is this is that nice, sultry uh, I believe that it was even described as seductive by a couple mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, these darker kind of oak cabinet type flavors. Yeah. And oak is important. Most Malbecs you will find from Argentina are going to be undergoing, at least for your more premium quality styles, some barrel regimen yeah. to get those oak flavors in there. If I'm not mistaken, it was actually uh, when they discovered what oaking did to Argentinian Malbec. That was when they were like, oh, we got to start exporting. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was when they realized that they had something amazing. Yeah. Um, but that's not the only red that we have, is it? Correct. Uh, so there's another more localized variety called Bernarda. This was brought over by the Italians. It is called Charbono in Italy. This is not Bernarda Piemontese from Italy. <laughs> so well that's not confusing at all hey it's better than spain and portugal where even within different regions the same grape will have different names just yeah um so charbono from italy not bernarda piemontese that is a different wine altogether however um it didn't come from italy like originally originally we actually think that this might be a descendant of a grape called douche i don't know if that is correct um it is D-O-U-C-E, and it's French, so Douce Noir. Douce Noir. So yeah, so this uh, Douce Noir from France is what we think is the ancestor grape to Bernarda. 
This is going to be a higher acid grape. I personally have never had it, so I'm relying on um, descriptions that I have read and and listened to about it here. Um, So it's going to be a little bit higher acid, very much a lighter profile than Malbec. This tends to produce your fruity, lesser quality wines in the country. And when I say lesser quality, there are, as with any country or region, there are winemakers that make very good Bernardo. Like there are winemakers that take pride in their Bernardo. But in general, it is used for more of your quaffable table wines because it does produce that lighter, fruitier profile as compared to Malbec, which is a much more serious quote unquote wine. So we also have some more of our, our more common wines, the ones that people think of as far as, as red wines go. What would you say is the expression of Cabernet Sauvignon in Argentina? Very similar to, I think, what you would find in a lot of Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon, but their Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't have the reputation that Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon does as much. They still produce very high-quality Cabernet Sauvignon, particularly at the premium price point. Do not get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that they produce lesser quality, but uh, Chile, at least in my experience, is a little bit more refined. And that, again, will kind of come down to the climate is a little bit more conducive to that style. And the Bordeaux winemaking style heavily influenced Chile, as we mentioned in that episode. So probably a little bit more rich and full body, probably closer to California without being quite as um, jammy in my own experience, Mm -hmm. uh, having drunk the two from these countries. Yeah. Lots of oak influence. Yeah. um, Yeah. Just like Malbec, lots of oak. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's a good, it's a good flavor profile. I think that it it balances out uh, Cabernet Sauvignon in a very good way Mm -hmm. in as far as uh, Argentinian Cabernet Sauvignon. Correct. Yeah. We also have Syrah, though. Yeah. This stuff is grown at various different quality levels inside mm-hmm. of Argentina. It, Syrah is kind of, um, it's being explored, I think, is probably the best way to say it. I don't think Argentina has really landed their style yet in terms of like, this is Argentinian Syrah. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of winemakers are just kind of playing with it right now. And so, like you said, you, you get some hits and you get some misses. But it is being explored, and yeah. it could be a very, if you're feeling adventurous, it might be fun to pick up a bottle and just see what you get out of it. Well, and that's the thing. So, like, the grapes themselves, the location that they have for growing them is producing really high-quality Syrah. As far as how to take the flavor that they're being presented with and blend it and present it, that's where I think that they are in need of more experimentation. Yeah. That kind of brings us to our next point, though. We would love to talk to you guys about the different regions inside of Argentina. When we were talking about Chile, it's a very small strip of land. This place is massive. Mm -hmm. We still only have a kind of a thin strip being used. But, I mean, you're talking about 214,000 hectares of planted surface yeah they have they have leaned into their production for sure i mean that's that's nearly that's nearly double what chile has planted yeah as far as surface area is concerned so we have a lot of different regions we're going to list them out for you guys north to south Mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of give you a general description of what's grown there what you can expect when you're looking at the areas, it's really quite interesting. Yeah. So first up, we have the Calchaqui Valleys. This area, I mean, it's super mountainous valleys. They're interesting because you kind of have like psychedelic looking hills 
with the way that the mineral deposits are, it's all these different colors just in these awesome little strips going in pinstripes across them. It's just a riot of alternating colors. This area is going to have kind of poor soils, so it's, it's a lot lower yield. But a lot of the problems that they're going to be facing are going to be with, uh, they, they do have a lot of more of the extremes of the weather. So it can be super, super hot, resulting in the burnt grapes. And then also there is a frost window. So there are times when it gets cold enough at night that you are losing some of your vines due to the fact that it's just gotten too cold. Yeah. The average temperature during the day is around that uh, 27 degrees, which is around 90 degrees. And then it's going to be around 15 degrees Celsius at night. A lot of direct sun exposure, like we were talking about in the morning and in the afternoon. But it's mostly shaded during that kind of most brutal part of the day. We also have a lot of really steep hills. If you've been following us for the last couple where we've talked about the terroir of Chile and the terroir of Burgundy, those slopes, those uh, nice steep slopes that allow for some rainfall, but not for a lot of settling, it really helps the quality of grapes. Let's see, we also have mostly Malbec and Cabernet Sauvignon here. So that's the area in general, but we also have the regions themselves in these valleys. So what would the first one be, uh, Salta? So that's going to be your, in general, most famous region. It's one of the more famous regions in Argentina overall, outside of Mendoza. So this is actually going to have its own subregions, which are going to be Cachi, Molinas, San Carlos, and Cafayate. Cafayate tends to be kind of the highest um prestige out of those at least from what i've seen in stores salta is going to have some of the highest altitude plantings in the country and also just in the world some of these vineyards are at a height of over 300 meters above sea level oh, three three uh, three thousand excuse yeah. me three thousand meters above sea level so that is uh extremely high yeah as a rough estimate you're that's looking at around like seven thousand feet mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah very difficult for you know harvesting you kind of have to hand harvest it's, it's it's difficult to grow at that altitude but it produces very refined wines salta is mainly known for its torrantes the popular black grapes are also going to be grown here but torrantes is really what people tend to focus on from mm -hmm. this region this also has some of the oldest vineyards and it has the first winery in the country fun fact the first winery that was registered in Argentina was registered in 1831 in Salta. I was unfortunately not able to find what that winery was, though. We did have vines, though, that were planted in the mid-1600s. So some of these vineyards that became officially registered, they are dealing with vines that are actually fairly old. Mm -hmm. So moving on from Salta, though, that's kind of Salta in, in a nutshell. But we also, for the uh, other valleys here... We have Tucumán. This is going to have two subregions of Amaicha de Val. And then we have Calalao de Valle or Valle. I do not know exactly how it's pronounced in the common parlance. Uh, and for our third subregion for the Calchaqui Valleys is Catamarca. And that is going to have one subregion, Santa Maria. These two regions, I couldn't really find a whole lot about them. Salta really kind of overshadows them, but they are wine-producing regions, and you might see them on a label. And they're probably going to have some pretty quality wines coming out of there as well, just, again, because of the altitude and the care that has to go into caring for those vines. Yeah. 
So we have that. We also have some of these higher volume ones, and I would say that the largest volume producer region would be La Rioja. Super large production in the Famatina Valley of Toronto's. A lot of black grapes. The Famatina on the label is used in order to distinguish the wines from Rioja, Spain. Yeah. Uh, as many of you probably were already thinking, even when I said La Rioja, it's the same word. It's just, it's the same word. You're looking at around 1,850 meters in altitude for its highest area. These are also super mountainous valleys, and that allows them to still have some good drainage. Lots of deep, sandy soils. They're alluvial, and they're a little bit rockier than some of those higher valleys. There are occasional droughts, but their irrigation systems are pretty commonplace. They, mm. they're, they're doing pretty well. Yeah. This is your large volume producer, and you can get some good wines out of this, but it's it's not going to be the same as your your other regions or even Rioja from Spain. So, you know, just remember if you're trying to go for, for a Rioja from Spain to take a look at that bottle and make sure you're not seeing Famatina on it. Yeah. So then we move on to San Juan, which is going to have vineyards ranging from about 400 meters to 1400 meters in altitude. So again, lots of very high altitude plantings. Uh, as you said with La Rioja, same thing here, very mountainous region, lots of valleys and nooks and crannies. So San Juan is going to be known if you want to find Syrah out of Argentina. This is going to be the area you probably want to do it from because it is known for its Syrah. Chardonnay and Viognier are the most planted white grapes from here. So if you want to try an Argentinian Viognier, probably a good idea to seek it out here as well. Yeah, it's considered the second most important wine province in Argentina, from what I've read. So you have your highest reputation. Well, that's mainly for production numbers, though, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, That's totally, totally talking about production volume and sales, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's 16% of the area that is planted, though, in all of Argentina. So it's, it's actually fairly large. It's an interesting little area. I would love to try more of the Syrahs that are coming out of here, but uh, as far as just places that are more well known or have a higher reputation, this is not as this doesn't have as much of a spotlight on it. Now, if we want to go to where the spotlight is pointing, one hundred percent Mendoza, Mendoza, Argentina. Yeah, our our little golden boy. Yeah, so the vineyards are going to be planted at altitudes similar to San Juan. But this region is going to be overall hotter in its climate. So that is typically going to mean more ripeness for the grapes. So a little bit more room for higher quality wine production from that, partially from that. Um, The northern and eastern parts are focused on a lot more high volume production. Uh, This is made possible primarily by the Mendoza River that flows through them. So that's a lot more water that you can grow a lot more grapes with. Mm -hmm. Central Mendoza is kind of your big player for Mendoza overall. This is going to have the longest quality production history, also just some of the longest wine production history in Argentina in general. This is one of the first places winemaking really took off. Yeah. So we do have some subregions here in Central Mendoza. So we start with Luan de Cuyo. This was the first established appellation in huh? Mendoza. <laughs> Sorry, I just... <laughs> 
Shorzy rears his ugly head again. <laughs> well, it's it's because you had to try twice. We uh we we switched out the the cellar goblin for Shorzy. Yeah. Honestly, I'm I'm kind of happy about that. I mean, Shorzy he has some goblin energy, you know. He's oh a, yeah, he's he's a little gabo. So in uh, Luanda Cuyo, we have our first established appellation in Mendoza, which was in 1993, actually, so pretty recent. This has a very high-quality reputation for its Malbec. The vineyards are also going to be a little bit higher than some of the other places in Mendoza. They're going to be at about 900 meters to start, up to about 1,100 meters Mm -hmm. here. So we have that amazing, more likely better drainage, Mm -hmm. uh, longer growing season because of the higher diurnal range. Mm -hmm. And And cooler air just in general. Yeah, well, cooler air and also more sun exposure. Mm Because when you're talking about altitude, you're not just talking about the cooling effect you're not just talking about the slope you're not talking about just those things you're also talking about the horizon line this is peaking up over the horizon so you have more sun exposure at a lower temperature and that is wonderful for a nice long rich growing season yeah so then we move on to maipu And Maipu is going to have a little bit lower altitude vineyards uh, compared to Luanda Cuyo. This one is also going to be focused kind of like the northern and eastern parts of Mendoza on your more high volume production. But there is some quality Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah grown here. Then we move on to the Uco Valley. This is going to have vineyards kind of like Luanda Cuyo starting at 900 meters but going up to even higher to 1500 meters. All the major grapes, for the most part, are going to be grown here at the Uco Valley, or in the Uco Valley, excuse me. These are going to be much more refined styles than a lot of other places within Argentina, even within Mendoza, uh, partially, again, because of how high these vineyards are. Some sites can even grow Pinot Noir, if, you know, the conditions are right. I have never had an Argentinian Pinot Noir, and I am livid. Well, I mean, it's probably going to come from here or maybe parts of Patagonia, if you're lucky. Uh, it's just a little bit too hot for Pinot Noir in most places in Argentina. Yeah. In, yeah. in Argentina. <laughs> Instead of asking oh, for a God, you ask for an Argentini. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with my brain today. I just cannot speak. No, it's perfect. It's um, perfect. So, uh, yeah, uh, back to our episode on Argentini. Jinx is perfect. Don't sue me. <laughs> Uh, But yeah, so some of these cooler sites and probably some of the higher sites are going to be able to grow Pinot Noir from the Uco Valley. Then we also have Southern Mendoza. Not a whole lot to say about Southern Mendoza other than it is another larger volume production area for most of your major grapes. Yeah, so we don't care about it. We don't care about it. We're we're too good for Southern Mendoza, honestly. (laughs) I mean, when you're just that far south, it's like, who are you? Who even are you? Who are you? Do you, you go do here? You, do you even go here? I don't, <laughs> I don't. I've never seen you before. Who do you know at this party? I mean, unless you're like very slightly further south in Patagonia. Well, then you're cool again. You then know? you're cool again. Then you're part of the cool kids club. Exactly. So Patagonia is planted at much lower altitudes than most of the rest of the country. We only really get between 200 to 250 meters here in terms of altitude. This is going to be cooled primarily instead of altitude by the southern latitude that it sits at. As Michael said at the beginning of the episode, the farther south you go, 
unlike in the northern hemisphere where it's flipped with the north, uh, the cooler it's going to be. So we also get very high diurnal ranges and long days here. The sunlight here is very direct and the days are longer this far south of the equator. The high desert winds can be an issue. Um, Patagonia stretches out farther to the east than most of the other wine-growing regions do, so this does extend out into the desert itself. So those winds can be a problem here, but um, there isn't too many other climate factors to prohibit grape growing here. Yeah. So we're looking at mostly Malbec, Merlot, and Pinot Noir being being grown here, like you said. You do have poorer soil, especially in the upper valley, mixed clay, sandy loam soils, gravel. And we're talking about the Rio Negro region within Patagonia here. Yeah. So the Rio Negro region is named for the river where most of the vineyards are going to be planted. Yeah. So the soil characteristics, they're just, they're super poor, good draining, and it's fairly dry, but they do have some average rain. It's not going to be anything crazy, though, otherwise the Pinot Noir would burst. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of just the general area. Yeah. And this is probably going to be your highest quality region in Patagonia. We also do have three other regions. We have Nequin, we have La Pampa, and Chibut. I couldn't really find a whole lot on these regions. Uh, they're going to be growing some of these more cooler climate grapes, obviously, because we are this far south. But I don't think they have the quality reputation, so they're probably going to be more of your large volume scale producers working there. Yeah, the main the main thing that I was able to find was uh, a description that was like overlooked by jagged snowy peaks, and I'm like, that is literally. Oh, you all. found the marketing team. Yeah, I'm like, that is literally all of Argentinian vineyards. <laughs> Um, so those are the the major regions. There are some subregions if you wanted to look them up, especially for Rio Negro. Um, there's just a bunch of different areas yeah, that it, you can take a look into there. It's hard to really talk about subregions, particularly right now, because a lot of them are being like made. Yeah, right. Now. Exactly. Um, it's, it's all an it's, experiment. It's been basically since the 90s, which is very recent in terms of the wine world that we've even gotten you know, protected, legally protected subregions to begin with. So there's more emerging. So if you want to, you know, take one of these larger regions we talk about and kind of dive into it, absolutely feel free. You'll probably find some really good stuff hidden in there. Fantastic. Well, as far as finding good stuff is going, today we do have a little tasting for you guys. A and smidge of a tasting. A, a smidge of a tasting. It's mostly for us. I mean, because let's let's be real. We're going to be describing <laughs> something beautiful. Yeah. And you don't get to try it unless you go out and buy it. So exactly. It's a thing. Uh, again, it is and, at Wegmans, though. So, you know, it's easily available if you have Wegmans in your area. Yeah. So our tasting is going to be very typically um, Malbec. And today we are going to be trying Arado, a Reserva 2019 Malbec from the Yuko Valley in Mendoza, Oh, we should probably mention, as far as I read, uh, Reserva means nothing legally in Argentina. So it's just kind of, I mean, it it works for this bottle because this tastes like I would expect a Reserva wine to taste. But just no, legally, as far as I know, there is no definition for that term in Argentina. That was my experience when I was going through and doing my research is that there was no consistency to the rules themselves. It was just kind of like... Argentina has mainly specific. focused their laws on like defining the regions rather mm-hmm. 
the labeling terms themselves. Yeah, which again, that isn't to say anything about the producers themselves. Oh yeah, no, 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 absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. So, so when we criticize a uh, nation's designation and laws, we are most certainly not criticizing the producers themselves. Yeah, we just like clarity on our end mm-hmm. as the consumer to know what exactly can I expect from a term like Reserva. So yeah. if there's a tool on the label, we want to tell you what it is. But when there is something that presents itself as a tool that doesn't mean anything, we want you to know that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's useful for a producer if they have a reserve, if you've tasted their other wines and you like them and you see a reserve from them, likely you'll probably like it. It'll be a little bit higher quality than their other stuff. Yeah. So again, this is coming out of the Yugo Valley in Mendoza, Argentina. So you are looking at between 900 to 1500 meters in altitude it's going to be that area that's a bit more on the refined side with this one in particular they're saying that this has been oaked for 12 months and yeah this is all watered by the snow of the andes so let's go ahead and uh let's dig into this I'm, i'm looking forward to this even just pouring it out of the bottle it filled the entire kitchen here and it it was cold too Like it, it, that's, that's impressive for a cold wine I had in the fridge for much longer than I should have before Michael got here. Yeah. And it's been aging over the course of this recording. So, or aging, it's been opening up. (laughs) It's really been been developing over the the past hour we've been recording. Let me tell you, this podcast has felt like forever. (laughs) It has opened up a lot though. I will say when we first poured it, the... It was a little it tight. Was, it was a little tight. It, it smelled a little lean almost, um, the fruit in particular, but now it's very full on the nose. Uh, and by full, I mean uh, that fruit is very rich. There's definitely some florality going on, violets, some, I, I wouldn't say rose, but there's almost, um, you know, those, they're not violets, but they are that wildflower we get here in Virginia that's also purple. Do you know the one I'm talking about? wisteria not wisteria no no no. It, like you find it in fields not not oh, oh trees oh. um is it kind of grass-like 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 yeah okay so i think i know what you're talking about it's kind of like a, a very light light purple color yes yeah very pale almost like lavender gotcha yeah. i i think i know what you're talking about i could not tell you the I, name of yeah that plant. but like i said it, it's just it's some native wildflower we have here honestly though but the smell when that kicks up i it smells like that to me so i guess and concentrated too it's yeah it's not it's, it's not trying to be subtle here so uh sorry listener if that's boring to you if you don't live in virginia it, it smells it has a wildflower aroma i'll say that um it definitely has again violet so that should be more familiar to you as a floral scent just a, a very sweet floral aroma but not overpoweringly floral don't think like riesling or anything but it's definitely present I would definitely describe this as being uh, a bit perfumey too, because it's yeah. not just that mm-hmm. it's it's floral; it's that it's a concentrated floral. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like an oil or a, or something mm-hmm. you would like perfume you would spray. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who enjoy, oh, do you get like gooseberry off of it? There's, there's no. Um, I see what you're getting at. I definitely see what you're getting at. It's there's kind more... of like a really like poppy berry uh-huh. flavor to it, almost like pink blueberries like <laughs> that's a very interesting way to put it but I, I know exactly what you mean yeah yeah it's um it's almost like rhubarb oh yeah yeah i have never called rhubarb in a wine before now that i think about it but it kind of smells like rhubarb that's i mean that's delightful yeah it's very poppy 
And this is just the aroma. We haven't even gotten into the flavor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's also the oak is definitely present. I don't think, though, I don't think these were first fill barrels. and I, Or if yeah. they were, I don't think they used entirely new oak because it's not overpoweringly oaky at all. It's definitely there. It is definitely oaked. You can smell it, but it's not super heavy on the oak. It, it's more of a, a structural element for the fruit to play off of, I think. Yeah. Like it would be essence of cutting board. When you have a full plate <laughs> yeah. of fruit. <laughs> yeah, particularly a cedar cutting board. Yeah, I mean, again, it is there. Yeah. No, well, let's taste it. Do you get, like, a slight bit of vanilla off of it? Like, this yeah. the most mild amount. I would say vanilla, yeah. yeah. I mean, that'll come from the yolk as well. Yeah, let's let's take a look at this, and I want to I wanna thank body, fruit, and tannins first. Not a super heavy body. I would get this to medium to medium full. Yeah, that's the ballpark I'm going and yeah as far as the tannins go what are you thinking because these i think that these are kind of rolling tannins they i would so to put it in um my studies lexicon i would classify these as medium plus tannins yeah they're not Um, super heavy yeah they're not they're not heavy tannins but they are present like they are on my teeth and they are kind of starting to get up on my gum line i can kind of start feeling them there so they're they are present this is again this is going to be a tannic wine. It is still Malbec, but it's not super heavy. Yeah, I mean, and the really the tannins themselves—they're not—they're not particularly smooth or or like satin or anything they're, like they're, that. They're velvety. They're they, velvety. They kind of have a little bit of that texture still intact. Yeah, yeah, but they're not chalky. They're not quite as jarring as that. No, yeah. like I'm really having to bite down on them to to kind of discern their texture at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they seem to be again just more of a structural element. Than, they're, yeah, they're than very well integrated. Yeah, they don't overpower anything else. Uh, the acidity is lovely. You can mm-hmm. you can really taste the terroir in this because of that nice uh, high acidity. It's probably what's preventing us from getting more of the abrasive quality of the tannins themselves, just because of that high acid. Um, not necessarily, because I mean tannins are going to grip no matter what, because they just interact with your saliva. Well, yeah. Well, they they cling to proteins. Yeah. So when you have a higher acid, it can kind of help your. It'll you... keep it more refreshing. You you yeah. are right about that. Yeah. 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 What would you uh, say is the alcohol percentage on this, if you had to guess? Based off of where I know it comes from, and the the legs are kind of telling me, I'm thinking we are in the thirteen to thirteen five range. Something tells me it might be fourteen. It is fourteen percent. Okay. Yeah. The fruit profile, I would say that this is fairly ripe. It's ripe, but it's very fresh as yeah. well. Like that, it, it, it tastes like it helps. just like just got picked yeah. off the tree. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's like that high high acid combination with nice, rich, dark flavors. Mm-hmm. Kind of, uh, I'm thinking so the dark fruits. We're gonna yeah. say so, like your blueberries, your blackberries. Well, actually, I would throw I, a tart cherry in there. Um, yeah, because I was—it's not quite black cherry, but it's also not quite that Bing cherry either. It's yeah, tart cherry. I think would be good. Yeah, I think I think tart cherry also just accounts for how refreshing it is. It's not ripe in that way of like this is almost syrupy. Mm-hmm. It, it's just such a refreshing experience yeah. altogether. So like tart cherry, I would say fresh fresh blueberries. Mm-hmm. Blackberry, I get, but it's it's definitely not that denser flavor. That one's no, that one's no. definitely a fresher fruit. Yeah, this is lovely. Yeah, as far as the oaking is concerned, are you picking up 
Yeah, I can taste the yeah. oak spice on it. Yeah, there's... there's a little bit tertiary stuff going on as well. Um, not not heavy at all. This is still fairly young as a wine, but a little bit of earthiness, more dry earthiness, like dried leaves kind of thing going on. And the floral does show up on the palate for me as well again. As far as the spice goes, uh, definitely not like a black or a white pepper. I would say black pepper. You think so? I just—I mean, I, it's Malbec, so. But not like a, it's not a, um, it's not like fresh cracked black pepper. This is like. It's more dried. Yeah. It's, it's more it's, dried, yeah. It's a dried black pepper. I would even say that it's gotten a little heat on it because mm-hmm. it's not super, super duper pronounced to me. Yeah. It's a much more subtle element that's just kind of giving a kind of a, a subtle stage to the fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a solid wine though. I'm really enjoying this. I would say uh how how much is this? Do you know? Oh gosh. Um I want to say this one. I'm so sorry. I don't remember off the top of my head. It was in the 15 to 20 range. I do know that mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. I don't think it broke 20. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Yeah. Gosh, huh? I, nor- I normally do the entire outro, so <laughs> I'm not used to springboarding off of you, you thanking people. I'm the grateful one. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to improve my image. I'm trying to make myself seem like the nice one instead of the grumpy cave troll that I actually am. Well, you're not the grumpy cave troll. I, I you're, I'm, you're I'm the, the I'm the grumpy bog hag. You're right. Yeah. Bog hag. Yeah. I eat children. Um, <laughs> Come try my wines. Would you like some Malbec? <laughs> I, I have a burgundy from an allocation that is very uh, rare. Dear God, this is the first time I've been terrified <laughs> of a bog hag because that would work that, on that, me. That would work that would on work. you. I'm going into work. her house. Yeah. I'm asking her if I can wash the dishes afterward. <laughs> like... Maybe that's what'll save my life. <laughs> <laughs> just being a good house guest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just like being very polite. No, you sit down. I'll get everything from the kitchen. <laughs> oh, thank you, dearie. No one's ever offered to do that before. Do you have any cheeses you would like? Is there anything to pair? I don't want to let you know, impose. Oh, I do think a nice manchego might go well with this. Oh, that sounds lovely. Uh, and I'll take care of the... Di- you know what? We've gone too the, far the bit, into this. The bit is overstated. Welcome. <laughs> Sorry, my my inner dm was coming out um anyway thank you guys so much for joining us on this exploration this travel into the southern country of argentina and all of its various wine regions we hope that you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have and hopefully we will be seeing you next time when we are talking about phylloxera Uh, looking forward to hearing from you guys on our social media which we hope that you will Follow, comment, subscribe, do all the things, share it with your friends, at Laidback Life engage, on Instagram. Engage, engage, yeah, give us that engage, a, engage. You know what? Help us to get that algorithm working for us because we love doing this and we would love to be able to continue doing this. Indeed. Uh, so thank you guys so much. I have been Gabe. I have been Michael. Cheers. We can't use any of that. <laughs> Say cheers, Michael. Cheers. You tell them cheers. Cheers. They deserve it.